think one of the most painful things that we experience in this life is that of being rejected. Sometimes we refer to it as being ignored or marginalized, maybe not being listened to, being pushed away. Everyone experiences some form of rejection at some point in life. For some of us, this comes really early, I'm sad to say, in our own uh, homes that we grew up in, where for whatever reason, you were not admired, delighted in, wanted, desired, and this wound of rejection can come from a parent. Somehow you didn't add up to some sort of expectations, whatever they were, and this, this parental rejection is so painful. It could be the reverse, and the longer that I live and the more that I'm in community with brothers and sisters who have lived longer than me, the more that I see that parents often pour out their heart for their children only to have that child take it out on you. A local psychiatrist that's a deacon in our tribe wrote a book about this, about the hand that bites you when you're actually trying to help. And this rejection, that's what it is, this rejection is incredibly painful. Uh, Sometimes it comes from peers. Uh, Whether it's you're in school, for those of you that are still in school or at work, you experience um, the cool kid table where you're not cool enough, you're not athletic enough or smart enough or pretty enough or something. You're not enough. And there's an incredible, overwhelming sense of rejection that often happens early. I've never heard anyone say, man, I really wish I could get back to middle school. It was so great. It could be a position. Uh, For those of you that have ever been in a work environment where you were not valued or you were overlooked or you were even let go, this, this is painful. Unfortunately, I find too many Christians, particularly those who have served as leaders in the church, have experienced rejection within the community of faith. It's often true of people who have served as pastors or clergy, whether it's parents, peers, position, even if it's a church, even if it's big or small, everyone will experience some form of rejection at some point in their life, and it hurts, it's painful. Wherever you are or however deep your experience has been, Um, I've got some really good news, really comforting news that's going to surprise you. That the God of the universe understands. That the God of the universe empathizes and feels sorrowful with you in your rejection. You know why? Because the God of the universe was rejected. He's, He's a reject God. This little short passage in Luke 13 shows us a couple of things. I I want to look at at two mainly. A really comforting truth, which I've just said, that that if you've been rejected or you felt it, that God understands. In fact, he will be utterly rejected so that you and I can be totally accepted. That's really comforting news. We'll look at that. But it's also, in these four or five short verses, a really convicting warning. It's both, 
And they go together in Jesus' response to Herod Antipas as well as his weeping over Jerusalem. There is both the voice of comfort and the voice of conviction spoken to us. If you open your Bible to almost any place, today we're looking at Luke 13, but if you open your Bible to almost any place, what you're going to find almost all over Old and New Testament is God reaching out his hands in love to the world, to his own people, and their response being one of saying, ah, I'm not interested, don't want it. In fact, there's a summary statement that's repeated in the prophet Isaiah. It ends up being quoted in the New Testament that all day long I held out my hand to you. I held out my hand to an obstinate people who walk in ways that are not good, who pursue their own imaginations. It's a summary statement of the way in which our God is the rejected God by the overwhelming majority of his creation. And this is painful. We know that when the prophet Isaiah goes on to describe the suffering servant that is to come, take a look at this. It says that he was despised, and look at that word, rejected. By all of mankind, he was a man of suffering. He was familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. That's from Isaiah 53. And this is exactly what happens when Jesus comes into the world. He comes to his people and they reject him. In fact, by the time we get to verse 31 in Luke 13, the crowds that had been attracted to Jesus because of the miracles, because of the bread, because of the hype, have dwindled. The crowds have shrunk by the time we get to this moment in Luke 13. People have actually begun to accuse him of being demon-possessed. How's that for rejection? How's this? His own family says, you know what? The problem with Jesus is he has a mental problem. They they said that. They despised him. They rejected him. And we know ultimately that once we get to the end of this 40-day season of Lent, by the time we get to Good Friday, Mark 14 summarizes it this way. Look at this, just real simple summary. Everyone fled. Everyone rejects him. His most loyal companions, men that he called friends, reject him. This rejection is painful and it hurts. I know we're not yet at Passion Week, but the second Sunday of Lent that we're at right now wants to shock us with the rejection that God has experienced. He's headed to Jerusalem, he knows what's coming, and he's given a warning from the Pharisees in verse 31. Now, know that the warning is not because they like are looking out for him. They don't like Jesus, they want him gone. They come and they give a report. In verse 31 of Luke 13 says, Herod, Antipas, you need to get away from here because at this very hour, he wants to kill you. Now, on this theme of God being the rejected God, have you you ever been so hated that somebody wanted you dead? I mean, there's been people who didn't like me. But I've never been so hated that, that people actually wanted me, like, gone from the earth. That's the level of hatred that's present around Jesus. And the heat just gets turned up the closer and closer we get to Jerusalem over the next 40 days. 
30 some odd days now. There's famous prophets in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, that become martyrs for the kingdom, that they're prophets of God and they are stoned, they are put to death. We know New Testament prophets like Stephen, that, that their, their passion and love of God's kingdom and their willingness to speak truth and love led to them being hated and despised in this world. It's not just something that happened in biblical times though. Anyone who proclaims the gospel story in truth and in love will be despised and rejected in this world. You look at key moments in history, and we have famous martyrs that we look back, like Tyndale, who translated the scriptures into English and was killed for that. People like Ridley and Latimer, part of the English Reformation, who were burned at the stake for proclaiming the gospel story that we believe. Can, can you imagine being so hated that people wanted you dead? It's interesting to me when I look back and try to think of prophetic people in a, the more modern era. And certainly, one that comes to mind was a 26-year-old young black minister who led the bus boycott in Montgomery. 26 years old. Think about that in the way we think about 20-somethings these days. And from the very beginning of his participation in what became known as the civil rights movement, people wanted him dead. And he didn't run, he didn't flee. Now, we could talk a lot about prophetic leaders throughout history. You know what prophets do? They make us uncomfortable. Prophets make us uncomfortable. We're okay looking back in the past and going, well, look, we, we, we sort of respect and admire them from afar. But can you imagine if MLK was alive today, how uncomfortable he would probably make so many different people? Facing the issues of race that we're currently facing today, we are okay respecting them in the past, but in the present, prophets make us uncomfortable because they speak truth in love. If, if they speak truth in love, they make us uncomfortable. And we know that Jesus Christ is the perfect, divine, human prophet. This is, this is a prophet on a totally different level. There is no one else like him. And he makes us uncomfortable. And when his life is threatened, did you notice that he doesn't, he's not afraid? Do you see the majesty of his response? It's kind of hard to see because he calls somebody a name nobody's going to force him to go to the cross. He's laying down his life for the sake of the world. He's not afraid of Herod Antipas, even though this is the strongest top dog in the universe that he lives in. Jesus isn't afraid for his life. He doesn't run. He actually says, go, go and tell that fox. We have a number of different ways. Let me just look at this. Go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons. I perform cures today and tomorrow. And on the third day, we know Jesus uses this term. On the third day, what is he referring to? That day where he will enter into the tomb, but then he will be risen from the dead. He said, on that third day, I will finish my purpose. There's nothing Herod Antipas can do to prevent the purpose in which I have come. I'm not afraid of him. You go and tell him that today, tomorrow, I'll keep about my father's business. And when it's my time, it'll be my time. He has a way of speaking back to Herod Antipas in a way that, that is uh, shocking, really. If you've ever studied Jesus' encounter with individuals, 
I would love for you to try to prove me wrong because it'll make you really read the New Testament closely. I don't find anywhere else in the New Testament where Jesus speaks this sternly to an individual. This is a unique moment in how he responds to Herod Antipas. Who is this guy? It's not Herod, the one that killed all the children at the beginning of Jesus's birth. This is his son, Herod Antipas. And Jesus refers to him and says, you go and tell that fox. What a harsh way of speaking towards another human being. But we kind of miss the severity. We, you know, Jesus isn't being cute. He's not being funny. He's not being whimsical. It would have been a term that would have been used of an unclean animal. There's no place when I look at the scriptures where Jesus refers to another human being as being hopeless. Did you know that? And yet Herod seems to be so. Herod seems to be living the kind of life where he is just sort of finished. He's not open to the appeal of the kingdom or the king. We know that Jesus says this to him in this moment, but when we fast forward to the end of this 40-day period, Jesus will stand in front of this person, Herod Antipas. This is the one who killed John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. He'll stand before him when he's on trial, and you know what Jesus will say to him? Absolutely nothing. Jesus Christ will be silent before this man. He is excited he's going to get to meet Jesus, not because he believes in him or thinks he's a great person, but he's amused by Jesus. He wants to see a little trick, a little magic show, and Jesus is silent before him. Did you know that part of maybe the ultimate sign of the judgment of God is when he no longer speaks? When he, he gives you over to the desires of your heart, that is ultimate judgment. He has nothing to say when he stands before Herod Antipas. Now, Jesus Christ's words to him in this moment, and then what he goes on to say, are either the most comforting or the most convicting prophetic encounter you can have. Verse 33, he says, Behold, I cast out demons. I perform cures today and tomorrow, and on that third day I will be perfected. Jesus is saying, I will be rejected so that others can be accepted. And then he turns. Now we're going to turn with him. It wasn't a mistake. It almost felt like we shifted scenes. It's the same moment. He is threatened, and then he pivots, and he begins to weep and pray and, and talk to Jerusalem. He pivots. Because the problem isn't just Herod. The problem isn't just the Pharisees. The problem is all of humankind is responding to God's offer and invitation with rejection. And Jesus, we hear the heart of God in this moment. Jesus cries out and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that stones the prophets that are sent to her. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. There's both comfort and conviction here. The comfort. Like a mother hen wants to gather her chicks under her wings, Jesus says. I stand here ready to welcome you. I want to gather you up. I want to draw you near to me. I want to bring you close to me. That's the heart of God. Do you hear it? Do you experience that that's his heart towards us? Even to Jerusalem. The prayer book of the Bible, the Psalms, regularly records a prayer 
about asking God, you've heard this probably quoted before, would you hide me under the shadow of your wings? What a beautiful image. One of my favorite uh, verses that I, that I pray would, that I would live into, into this reality. It's actually part of our daily rhythms, if you're a part of the daily prayer, where we, we remind ourselves of this beautiful truth of our Father in heaven. We pray in 17, Psalm 17, verse 8, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me under the shadow of your wings. What a, what a beautiful understanding of self before a holy God. That because of what Christ has done, because he's been totally rejected, we are supremely accepted and we are the apple of our Father's eye and we hide under the shadow of his wings. I didn't mean to be playful with the gender because here Jesus Christ actually refers to the mothering heart of God. And uh, wow, uh, I'm, not, uh, I'm not an animal expert by any means, but both on the human as well as the animal kingdom level, there is no, there's nothing that can stop the love of a mother protecting her children. She will risk her own life, and we know that's exactly what Christ is going to do. As he goes to Jerusalem, he will risk his own life. He will give his own life. He will be utterly rejected so that we can be accepted. The God that we so often push away is the one that wants to pull us close. The God that we reject is the one that wants to accept us. Do you see the heart of God? I know people are burnt out with the church and our culture and society, but I want to tell you, they, they've not encountered this, this heart, this God, this Jesus, who wants to pull us in, who wants to draw us close. And if we're not drawing near to him, there's four little words that describe why. Do you hear it? You wouldn't let me. Do you hear the lament of a loving parent? I've always been here for you. I've always wanted to gather you. I've always wanted to draw you close, but you wouldn't let me. Now, what do we do with this? I think what we do with this both message of comfort and conviction really depends upon where you are and how you're responding to Jesus as the ultimate perfect divine prophet of God. It's either the most comforting message or the most convicting warning. Uh, the message of comfort, I've already commented on this, but if you've been rejected, God understands. He knows what you're going through and his desire is to draw you close. I, I want you to know that this is especially true for anyone who, who shares in this prophetic vocation. That, that if you have been called by God to, to be especially um, anointed to speak truth in love, you will experience the rejection of God, and this is part of your mission and task. But actually, I should say that this, this rejection, this prophetic call is really the norm for every follower of Jesus Christ. Why would I say that? Well, this is what Jesus told his disciples, that if you follow me, if you come after me, if you love me, I want you to know that, that the world will hate you. That's pretty strong terms. Jesus actually said in John 15, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. But as it is, you do not belong to the world. I've chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Interesting. That if we are united with Christ, even if we speak the truth 
with love and gentleness and care in this pluralistic age that we are in, we will share in the rejection of God. There was a recent interview from a guy named Kerry Newoff. I don't, I don't read everything. He writes, all the, writes a lot. He's a blogger. Um, but he interviewed Tim Keller, and I have a lot of respect for Pastor Tim Keller in New York City, um, who's sort of semi-retired from his local congregation. But uh, he was asking Tim Keller, kind of in the middle of this last two-year crisis, what's the thing that should be on the radar for Christian leaders and disciples in this, this, this moment, this age? And Keller's answer was just, I thought it was so helpful. And, and it touches on this, this challenge that we have to be God's body in this present moment. And Keller commented on, hey, my reading of the Bible says that Christians ought to be sold out. Listen to these four things. Sold out for racial justice. That all races are equal, all made in the image of God. That they should be deeply concerned about the poor and the marginalized. Number two, deeply concerned about the poor and the marginalized. And then number three, that they should be pro-life. Number four, that they should believe that at least for Christians, that sex should only be between a man and a woman in marriage. The early church was marked by all four of these things. Now, this is where I think it's really helpful. Two of these look really conservative in our present day, and two look really liberal. And in God's kingdom and in God's church, these are held together all four commitments are held together. And you know what? That means we never really fit in any one party, any one platform. We never really fit. And depending upon, you know, the stump speech that's being given, it, it will either connect or conflict on some level. And what you and I will find is there's really not a home in this world where all the values of our king and his kingdom are upheld fully and held together. What do we do with that? Well, I, ho I hope you don't throw out the values of our king and his kingdom. You know, I'll, I'll take two or three of those, but not the fourth one. I hope that you, you'll embrace the, the odd vocation of be, and that you'd be vulnerable enough to, to be committed to your Lord and Savior and share in the sufferings of being rejected by the dominant culture around you. There's no other God like this in the history of all religions. There's no other God who's willing to go and experience this kind of rejection. What we see is there's comfort here that you're invited to share in that rejection and that he understands our rejection. There's also conviction, and I'll end with this. The most bitter outcome is not only for Herod Antipas, but for anyone who rejects God's invitation to come under the shadow of his wings. If you don't come under the shadow of God Almighty's wings, did you know that you are utterly defenseless? You need to know that there's actually a limit to this opportunity, this invitation. And this isn't talked a lot about in our modern day by preachers. We're not really the fire and brimstone age of, of preachers at all. And I'm, I'm not trying to get us back to that. But, but I do want you to see throughout Luke 13, Jesus and, and the, the, the lesson of Luke 13 is that there's a door that is open and God is speaking. And today is the day of the Lord's favor is the proclamation. And you are invited in and he wants you to draw you in. He wants to pull you close under the shadow of his wings. But that invitation, there's a limit. And there's a point at which the door closes. 
And we know he goes on to say this in verse 35, behold, your house is forsaken. He's speaking to Jerusalem here. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The most alarming judgment of God is here, both on Herod and Jerusalem. Did you know 37 some odd years after Jesus said these things, you know what happens to Jerusalem? They're attacked, the temple is barren, their house is left desolate. They didn't respond to Jesus' invitation. It's either the most comforting message that he understands rejection, that you're invited to share in his rejection, or it's the most convicting warning that if he's knocking on your door and he's revealing something in your life that needs to change, that's a sign of his grace drawing you closer to him. And I pray that you, by God's grace, would not turn down his voice or avoid it or withdraw or reject it. What he wants to do is gather you up. And so this morning, would you be comforted? This second Sunday of Lent, would you be comforted that the God of the universe is utterly rejected, a reject God, so that you and I can be totally accepted? Uh, We know on the cross, not only, as Mark 14 said, we'll all flee and leave him, but he'll actually cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus will be totally rejected so that you and I can be accepted. That, that brings comfort. And as we come to this table, that's what we're, we're being remembered into is that story, is that we're now the apple of our Father's eye. Would you be comforted? Would you also be convicted? If this prophetic voice is confronting something, don't, don't ignore it. Our comfort and our conviction meet at the cross, at this table. And so would you come and receive from the prophet of the Lord? Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that, Lord, you speak as we've seen all throughout the season of Epiphany. You speak to us, and this this is a sign of your grace. But God, we also give you thanks that you save us from our sin that you come and you rescue, that you, you draw us in close when we're helpless and defenseless. And so, Lord, in the areas of our lives where we've resisted your protection, your care, and your direction, may we bring that to you at this table, at the foot of your cross, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.